you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I am your host, Janine Garner, and it is fabulous to welcome you to this show, this podcast, a podcast where we share the stories around how other people have unleashed their brilliance, whether that be brilliance as business leaders, brilliance as industry game changers, brilliance as uh, philanthropists, as athletes, whatever it may be, we get to the bottom of where it all started and what it is that they do so that you can get the insights, the ideas and the thinking that you can put into your life personally and professionally. And I'm super excited to welcome today's guest. Alyssa Choi is an economist and data strategist, and she's got this crazy genius magic eye for data. She's a sought-after speaker who is able to elegantly translate big data and AI into engaging and thought-provoking stories on human behavior, on society, on culture, on business, and on industry. She's got this incredible ability to simplify business problems with a unique blend of strategy, finance, economics, and data. And she works with some of the world's biggest organizations, governments, academia, to really try and understand what is really going on. It's the deep listening using AI and big data to essentially shape a way forward, uh, whether that be policy, whether that be brand related, whether it be industry related. And she has been able to predict the future many times, whether that be winners of US elections, winners of reality TV shows, or even finding the gaps in industry that marketeers and businesses need to work on to develop the products that are going to pave a way for the future. Um, She shares in this podcast how she never really fitted in, how she didn't conform. And that's why in the early years, uh, life was so tough in terms of when she was working within organizations, because she was constantly curious about what was really going on. It was this constant why, why, why. So listen in, there is some awesome insights, some great live case studies, and an awesome debate around the future that is available for all of us if we democratize data, if we understand more deeply, and if we're brave enough to shape a way forward by listening much more deeply to what is really going on. Enjoy. It is such a pleasure to have you on my show today. Hello, hello. How are you? Hello, hello. Good to speak to you again, Janine. Oh my goodness, I cannot wait to get into this conversation. We have had so many chats in the last few months around everything that you are doing with your business, the impact that you are having uh, on some major decisions that are going on in the world. And um, I think uh, your work around how to actually truly deeply listen and therefore help what you do, take what you do, help businesses unleash their brilliance is so awesome. So I cannot wait to get into this. But before we do, um, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back. Um, 
talk to me about when you were a little girl. Uh, can you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? How little do you want to go? Uh, it's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to be an actress and a performer. I just had a natural flair for making people laugh. And I remember um, in primary school I would do little uh, weather reports in class and I would get dressed up for it and I'd just make the weather report just this hilarious five-minute segment and yeah. at the class in Stitches and they used to say, Lisa, you should be an actress. And then I said, oh, you know, I don't want to be an actress on Home and Away because I don't want to kiss strangers on TV. That's what I said. <laughs> Oh dear. And then I wanted to become a doctor because I'd like to solve problems and help people. Uh, and then I wanted to do, I loved puzzles. I always was into Sudoku or crosswords or figuring out stuff. So I had a lot of interests, but I definitely had, um, you know, dreams of starting my own business. I never knew what it was, but, you know, all the choys in, in my line of history are all business owners we're not the dentists or the doctors or the ists or the pharmacists you know we're all entrepreneurs so it was in our blood and you know even how I played was always playing shop you know so um I guess an entrepreneur in the making but had no idea what I was going to sell and where where did you grow up I was born in Hong Kong and so my early early years I um we, we lived in a small apartment. It was literally like a studio size. It was my, my brother and my mother. She was a single mother, um, a single parent. And so my mother had a uh, jewellery shop in a hotel and from the age of four um, I would help her in the shop. Um, so I would stand on a little stool and my little bob haircut and she would have customers coming in and, you know, she made her own jewellery and these customers would point into the glass cabinet and say, I'd like to take a, take a look at this. And I would just, you know, hand them the pieces of jewellery and just be that little cute obedient girl on her side. And so I always got lots of toys and gifts and stuff whilst my brother was in the back room with the babysitter crying all the time. So, you know, I had, I had a very early taste of shop, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, that was a Hong Kong experience. And through, through that shop, my mother met my uh, stepfather who ended up uh, he was from Australia and he uh, they got together and then uh, she decided I want to go to a country to a language I don't even speak the language of. So she made a very brave mood in the move in the 80s, early 80s. So we migrated to Adelaide. So I grew up in Adelaide and then we moved to Brisbane and I did most of my schooling and university in Brisbane. And then when I finished university, I came to Sydney. How do you think that that childhood has shaped who you've become? And what it is that you're doing now? Wow. Um, I definitely loved um, commerce, that's for sure, and uh, working with people. I was more the front person, engaging people. And um, my natural skills are always soft skills. And I know that growing up after university, I studied commerce and economics and finance. They were very left brain and analytical and the roles that I had as an analyst when I started was very, you know, crunching the numbers, all that sort of stuff, not so much front in front of customers or clients. Yeah. I found it frustrating. And back in the day, there was no such thing as EQ. It wasn't valued. Soft skills were not really valued. Hard technical skills were valued. 
So I found it really hard to find my place. Um, And so I guess I jumped through a lot of different jobs and roles. Like, you know, I started off as a consultant in banking and then I did lots of various finance roles and then I moved into other roles like retail analytics, marketing, advertising. So I've I've kind of just done a living MBA. The only thing I haven't done was law, but I did do one year of law and I hated it because it was too much reading and I, I loved debating, but I hated reading. You know, hated reading all that stuff. So when you arrived, how old were you when you arrived in Australia? Five. You were five. So can you remember what it was like landing in a country that everything looks new, everything, people are speaking differently, the food is different, culturally it's different. Can you remember anything about that moment? Actually, I don't have Wow vivid memories of that early part of my upbringing. I don't know why. Um, I suppose we didn't have the uh, ability to take photos on our iPhone to scroll through and jog your memory. Um, So, yeah, no, honestly, I would have to burn a lot of brain power to find something from the recesses of my brain. But I do remember that in early, uh, my early time in uh, primary school, I was only, I was the only Asian in in the primary school, the whole school, besides one Vietnamese kid and my brother. And I remember there was a lot of racism, but I didn't really know what that meant. Because you don't know you're different until you're told you're different, right? Mm -hmm. So I remember um, being teased a lot for being Asian. And back then the Asians in Australia were really the migrants or the refugees that came from Vietnam. So then they used to say that I was Vietnamese and I came from a boat and all that. And I used to go home and say, Mum, am I Vietnamese? And she's like, no, 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 you're not Vietnamese. (laughs) So, So, yeah, I suppose the... Those were some of my earliest memories of what it was like to be in Australia. Um, But, yeah, honestly, nothing else besides that. I'm just curious as to whether your curiosity around unearthing the real answers on really trying to find the truth and the facts, you know, whether there is that link back to your childhood at all. Like where does it come from, this insane curiosity that you have of delving deep of trying to find the answers of really uncovering what's truly going on versus what the majority of people do is we take the surface level answer do you you have any insight into where that's come from well I could I could probably say it's a personality thing for one um which is I'm just a curious cat. I asked a lot of why questions. Mm. Uh, And because I have a natural strategic macro brain, I look at a wide range of um, things from many angles to piece together the bigger picture puzzle. Um, And I have a curious, um, insane curiosity around understanding how people work and how, why do people act the way they do? Why do they say this to me? Why do people fight and have wars? Like all those big existential questions, they kind of plague my brain. I wasn't really into the schoolyard stuff. I was more into how does the world work? Um, And then I sort of added that with my insane ability to analyse things. And that's why it lended to my spare time being, you know, in Sudoku puzzles or crosswords or figuring things out or building Lego or just creating something out of nothing. And I loved to be able to uh, then tell the world what I thought of the world in story in my little way. So um, it was probably an innate thing. 
didn't serve me very well in, in uh, corporate at times because you're there to do a job, not to ask these existential questions. Um, and so I found it quite challenging because I would constantly be asking, why are we doing something this way? Uh, you know, so I'm kind of a bit of a maverick and a rebel without a cause, at least in my early years. And there was a sense of frustration that there were better ways to, to look at the world, better ways to understand how people behave. There must be data out there. Like we're making a lot of decisions, key decisions based on opinion, mm. which has its place. Wisdom has its place. Experience has its place. But to have the humility to then say, I only know my view based on my lived experience. It's only one angle. What does the wider uh, angle look like? And so when I apply that to my work, I am more interested in solving things like, you know, vaccine rollout, uh, what's the sentiment towards the economy as opposed to helping businesses um, sell more Mars bars, <laughs> which yeah. I do really well too. But uh, the stuff that, you know, gets me in the zone is working out how the world works. Isn't it funny, this, this curiosity though? I, um, I can still remember my daughter coming home from school and I said to her, how's your day been? And she went, oh, I got told off by the teacher today. And this was in primary school. And she's now 15, so it's not that long ago. And uh, I said, why? And she said, I got told to stop asking questions. And I, I, later, I did phone the school the next day because I said, you never stop asking questions, Taya. It's so important to keep asking questions about why, why, why. And the same thing happened with my 17-year-old son recently. He was he challenged the teacher because the teacher was obviously teaching the curriculum around a particular English piece. And he said, I don't agree that that's what Shakespeare, where Shakespeare was coming from when he wrote this. And it's this ability, and he wasn't coming at it from an a, aggressive argumentative perspective. It was a curiosity around, is that really true? Is there another way that we could look at it? So thank goodness that you had people around you that encouraged that curiosity. When you think about that, who do you think of that actually, um, and I, I, by the way, I love that piece about being a maverick in corporate too. Like, um, you know, I'm quite interested in myself at the moment of exploring how we as human beings, even if we are strong and courageous and brave, our natural instinct is to want to conform and fit in and how that's affecting our decision-making. But I'm imagining there's been some people along your way that have inspired you to, to keep going. Can you think of any of those? Uh, honestly, no one particular person. The people have come in and out of my life at various points to nudge me. Um, mm. But I think I've actually, it comes from within. I can't stop it. Janine, if, if I wish, if I wish to, to do something to make my life easier at times, particularly when I was in corporate, was to switch off that why and the curiosity and just do your job, right? Yeah. But um, it, uh, yeah, there were people along the way that understood and would see and understand where I'm coming from and encourage me, but there wasn't any hero person mm. because to me um, it was something that I just couldn't switch off and, I just had to live with it, you know. Um, I tried to fit in so hard so many times, so many times, but I just couldn't and hence I guess you just know when it's time for you to fly out of the cage, I'd say. Uh, and there's this beautiful quote 
from this song called Goodbye Little Yellow Bird or something. That, and I'm, I'm going to stuff it up, but I'm going to give it a go. It says, um, I'd rather brave the cold on, uh, on, a, on, a, on a twig or something than to be in a gilded cage of gold. Mm. It's kind of like how I feel. Like if you resonate with that, then it's like you do have a role to play. And sometimes the environment that you're in doesn't encourage you to flourish and be your brilliant self because my talents now are this curiosity allows me to not give up to find an answer. So there's always an answer and I use data to the point where I could be in a zone for 10 hours, right, looking at something. And when I was looking at the US election last year, I kid you not, Janine, I had one track on my headphones playing on a loop for 10 hours while I was doing the analysis. 10 hours. 10 hours. That's ridiculous. One that's song. how your brain works. <laughs> yeah. No, so that signals to me that that's where my genius lies because time just flew. I didn't eat. The sun went down. I didn't even notice. Uh, but I found the answer. So talk to us about this genius because I think you're a classic example of somebody that has spent many years fighting a system, rebelling a system, as you said in your own words, just then trying to fit in. But every time you try to fit in, it was that feeling of being caged and you had to get out. And I'm imagining there are many people listening to this podcast right now that feel exactly the same in terms of whatever their genius zone is. And, you know, you're now, you've stepped into that place of, of founding and running your own business. Um, share with our audience what it is that you now do and what is driving you to do the work that you do. So I run a business called Maven Data. It's, a, it's the world's first AI-powered strategic market research company. So we're AI-powered because we use the beauty of technology and advanced analytics to mine the data from the internet, which I call the market. So it enables us to do rapid, deep listening to understand what really matters to the general population. So imagine it's like, you know, taking a traditional survey poll or focus group but putting it on steroids. And so we can look at any issue in most spoken languages, in any region of the world. Now, with a curious mind like mine, isn't that just the holy grail? <laughs> so, um, you know, I apply this method in a variety of ways. We look at industry, community, social policy topics. We also look at industry, corporate topics and brand and marketing. There's so many applications of deep listening insights uh, that we can bring to the table now. And I'm so excited because I see stuff that will help navigate leaders to make clear, confident decisions. So the, the traditional approach to research and having been a marketeer in a formal life, formal life, not formal life, in a formal life, would be you would pay an agency to run a series of focus groups or you might do a quantitative piece of research and based on the outcome of those focus groups, that quantitative research, potentially overlaid with a little bit of desk research, you make decisions that um, essentially are the next direction of the business. What you're sharing now is that you have developed a system that enables you to go deeper and wider and therefore 
essentially have a significantly larger sample pool but also what you're saying is you're getting a real read because you're listening to what people are saying is that right yes in a in a high level you got it <laughs> yeah so talk, talk to me about chef with our listeners what what is where is the deep listening coming from what are you actually listening to okay so I use the term deep listening quite loosely. It's actually um, very in-depth analysis using natural language processing of all the content on the open internet. So imagine we are constantly every day in the privacy of our own digital screens, reading, engaging with content online, whether it be text, images, videos, you name it. And we're talking petabytes of this data that we can analyze at speed. Now, a petabyte is 10 to the power of 15. So it's one with 15 zero bytes of data. And Facebook chunks about, I don't know, multiple petabytes of data created every day. So there's a lot of data, right? So yes, sample size has now exploded. We use the element of natural language processing, understanding cognitive behavior, and neuro-linguistic programming frameworks to really measure the mathematical relationships of how content is related online and how people are engaging with it. Now, I can't tell you more than that because then they'll have the feeling, right? So it's it's essentially we are understanding what is really important. What do people deeply care about? And we measure it through emotion. So we're picking up on over 400 emotions that we measure in a hierarchy and ultimately it comes to two hero emotions, love and fear. And when you look at sort of um, emotions, we know as humans that we actually make decisions based on emotions. As much as we like to say we're rational, we're absolutely not rational. We are emotional creatures. And when we measure emotion, particularly strength of emotion, when you have a strong emotion, that's when you change behaviour. And when we pick up on that, that's when you predict the market. So you talk a lot about the fact that this uh, unique methodology that you've created is essentially democratising data for people. So suddenly you're getting incredible access, incredible access to an incredible amount of data to potentially really increase your understanding of what is truly going on, that from an organization's perspective, and I'm imagining a community, a government, a country, a policymaking perspective, allow you to really shape that way forward. Are you able to put what you do into context? Have you got any specific examples of of how you have used what you use or do what you do that's essentially created that opportunity for people to start thinking differently to shape that way forward? Okay, I'll give you a choose-your-own-adventure. Would you like to talk about vaccines, which is what we're working on? Would you like to talk about the future of work and leadership? Would you like to – and I'll give you one more. Would you like to talk about – uh, the future of food and wellness. Oh, my goodness. I'm going either leadership or vaccines. My curiosity is vaccines. Can we do that one? All right, we can do that one. So 
we've been looking at um, vaccines for the Sydney Policy Lab, which is attached to the University of Sydney. Why? Because obviously the role of vaccines has a critical place in the recovery of the economy, the global and local economy. Uh, there's a definite uh, requirement to really deeply listen to the market and the sentiment towards the vaccine, and it's multifaceted. It's highly complex. So the issue here is we want the vaccine to be rolled out as fast as possible to as many people as possible in the population in order to reach a level of herd immunity so that thing can reopen again, yeah? That's the outcome. However, to get there, to have a vaccine, it's actually a very individual decision. So in each person's decision tree, what determines their decision to take the jab or not is very unique. So for some people it could be as easily as um, I'm doing it because I have a, um, an elderly person that lives at my house and I want to protect them. I do it because I'm a frontline worker and I'm exposed to risk. It could be um, I want to do it for the greater good because I know that, you know, if we all get there then we all can be back to normal and move around the world again. Or it could be even like I don't want to because I'm just philosophically against it. There are so many factors that go into people's individual decisions and it's not something that a government can say, go do it, right? We live in a democracy. So here is the problem. We need to deeply understand what the market is thinking and feeling, what's important to them in this world of vaccines. So the research we're doing is essentially, again, looking at the open internet, looking at the Australian market and understanding the content around a suite of narratives around vaccine. And vaccine hesitancy was the first one we looked at. So when we're testing that, it's essentially saying, is vaccine hesitancy an issue, yes or no? How do people feel about vaccine hesitancy? Now, I can tell you, it's not going to be a surprise, that vaccine hesitancy is definitely a real issue. It's what we call timeless, which means it's deeply engaging and relevant to society today it's part of culture now if we came up with the read that said it's transient meaning not relevant it means that vaccine hesitancy is not a problem yeah so everything is based on questions and we're testing these questions against the market so the other element of this which is really interesting is we all expect some level of vaccine hesitancy but then if you go to other circles of friends some people are adamant that they'll take it they're ready to take it so it's really hard to unpick what's the overall sentiment of the country on this. What we found was that the emotions behind vaccine hesitancy is actually intensely negative, meaning there's a lot of fear currently, a lot of anxiety around it. Now, peeling through the you know layers of analysis, we can understand the why. So the why is where it informs our strategy. What do we do with it? So with vaccine hesitancy, it's very clear that people don't understand it. People don't understand the science of vaccines. People don't understand the rollout. There's frustration around the accessibility. There's a, there are so many, you know, sub-stories within this hero narrative that is shaping this sentiment. And what that means is when we advise these groups, we're telling them what the market is saying so that they can position their messaging, their information, their timing of the messaging to actually be tone in tone, not tone deaf, that's what mm. I would say, right? 
It's about influencing population through engaging with them. It starts with deep listening. And so for those cynics that might be listening, why is it so different than a focus group with thousands of people uh, where you're actually asking them outright or getting them to fill in some quantitative survey? Why is it so different? The cynics might be going, but we're already getting that data. So what's, what's the difference? Yeah, there's multiple ways to answer that. But the most important one is with a focus group or a survey, when you're asking somebody a question, it's you're going to get a biased like answer. Like no matter, you know, give me an example when someone says they're going to do something in the future and they actually do it, they could change their mind. Or they could be answering because they want, you know, they, they want to tell you what you want to hear or they have their own reason as to why they want to answer. So it's inherently biased. Opinions are biased. That's probably the most critical element of why it's uh, what we do is far more superior in this sort of context. Um, and that doesn't even go into sample size, you know, like getting a 1,000 people or 3,000 people takes time, resources and effort and manpower. And by the time, you know, you get the information together, the mood could have already shifted. It's also not repeatable. You can't bring those same 1,000 people into the room again to say, hey, how do you feel about it now? It's not systematic and it's not accurate and it's, uh, it's fundamentally, it's biased. And you've been able to use this approach to predict behaviour, haven't you? Um, so with that in mind, what do you see as that big opportunity for business leaders, for policy creators in terms of um, listening more deeply in terms of being more curious, in terms of working with you to get a true read on what's really going on. Do you want to pick an industry? Yeah. Well, why don't we go back to the um, the food one? Okay. So most industries are going through dynamic shift and will always, yeah? And that shift is either structural shift from within the industry and how it operates or from a consumer-led desire or need. We just change our, you know, we evolve, Right. So in the world of food, so I'm working with a client that is a major supplier of ready-made fresh food, salads, etc., to uh, the major retailers, the supermarkets. Now, they're in a position where they want to know what the consumer wants in their products. You know, you know they can make whatever they want. Now, why? If you meet the demands of the current consumers today, then you will become a category leader. You also change the conversation from price competition to going to tenders to, you know, as a supplier to, to become a category leader, to actually say we can see the future, we are producing the future, here it is, right? So it gives you the long-term sustainability and relevance, right, to the market. To understand what people want today and position yourself is a proactive, it's strategic, it's commercial, it's financial so you just you double down and focus your resources on meeting those needs. It's as simple as that, to be honest. Mm. Otherwise, you're just guessing, mm. wouldn't you? Whereas you're getting an actual read on the emotions that are re- that people are talking around through this. What did you call it? The petabytes of data that's out there which you're analysing to get a true read on how people are feeling about the American election, around reality TV show winners, around whatever industry it's in. Otherwise, you've got marketeers making decisions 
based on potentially some level of bias. So this is really exciting, isn't it? What do you see? We were talking off before we hit record around some of the stuff that you're seeing right now and curiosity around this um, ongoing global debate around DEI, you know, diversity, equality, inclusion. And particularly, you know, across the world, I think we're seeing increased voices around the continued inequality and um, then right down to sort of micro level of the the bullying that's happening in organizations. So, and I'm, I'm imagining that there's a lot of emotional context that you could probably grab by deep listening. And you were sharing that this is one of your passion pieces at the moment. Tell us a little bit more about that. This is a very uh, important topic to close to my heart because it it touches everybody. And um, when I was looking at workplace bullying as a narrative a couple of years ago, um, it showed deep, intense, negative emotions, as you can imagine. When I looked at it again 12 months later, same scenario. Now, to me, when I looked at it, I was like, well, when I see this sort of profile, I would expect action in market, right? Because in a commercial sense, if there's a problem with a product or a brand, that product or brand will not exist in two years' time, I can guarantee, right? So I was really curious to understand why have we just continued to suffer with this uh, deep resentment towards this issue? It's like suffering in silence, really. There was We were missing a catalyst to be heard, and I feel that in the last month or two months here in Australia, that catalyst has been the voice of the young people, right? They have a different paradigm as to why they you know, show up compared to us, <laughs> you know, we lived in a different world. So our voices were muted, whereas they have a different world, like your daughter, et cetera, your son, et cetera, right? So it was their bravery to say, you know what, this is not on anymore. And that became the catalyst to just literally open Pandora's box. So when I looked at workplace bullying and these issues around misogyny, patriarchy, white supremacy, sexual harassment, these are all powerful narratives in their own right, but they're so interconnected. It all relates to disrespect. Disrespect and all of the emotional profiles, I can tell you, are very similar, intensely negative. We are sick to death of it. But now there's an opening to be heard. And the, 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 the nuances around each of them are very different, as you can imagine. But it gives us clues as to what people are, um, you know, what is really irking them, you know. And there's through that we can actually advise corporates and advise policymakers on really hitting the chord on tone, right, demonstrating to the market that we have heard you mm. because change is ready to happen. I wrote an article you know, predicting that we truly are at the precipice of a revolution. Mm. because the market's ready, the emotions are charged, and there's an opening. So it's going to take a lot of bravery or realism, whichever way you look at it, for a leader to be open to go, I'm ready to hear this stuff, knowing that by hearing it, by listening deeply, by understanding what is going on emotionally with their potential clients, customers, employees, um, that they're actually going to be able to shape the best way forward, that they're going to be able to potentially 
really strategize a plan that will pave them into the future, really put in place in place the right policies and procedures that are actually driving change versus the tick box of stuff that we're currently seeing. And and whether you are a a brand that's people-based or a brand that's a product-based or whatever industry you're in, what you're saying is there's a huge opportunity for those leaders brave enough to have the conversation and to listen deeply because the answers are there. They've just got to choose to listen. Correct. The answer's always there. It's already in the data. The Mm. market already has the wisdom. You just need to find it and uncover it. And it's your choice whether to take the leadership step to move forward because the first person or the first leaders to do that, they will be rewarded. They will be. I mean, you know, it's just people want to be heard. People want to work for employers that represent them. You know, even when we looked at diversity and inclusion in a recent piece for a, another client, the de- definition of DNI is not about gender. Like we all know that, but then sometimes people don't listen still, right? There are so many facets to the DNI conversation that will continually evolve. And I see corporates spending hard dollars and budget on DNI and actually having champions of DNI. I think what this will help supplement the effectiveness of those programs would be to engage in some deep listening in the industry you're in and also how it relates to your brand. So imagine I was very tempted to run Minta Ellison as the brand, right? Because, you know, as we know, the CEO of Minters had to resign, you know. And so you look at that, and I was one, my curious mind was ticking again, going, I wonder what the market sees and perceives that move to be. Did it, was it detrimental to the Minters brand? Because you can imagine inside the organisation how many females are like scratching their heads going, now what? What mm. do you do? And, do, you know, if you're a graduate coming out of law school, do you want to choose Minter Ellison? Mm. male or female do you want to be so I'll you know I didn't look at it because you know uh, if I continued to look at everything I you know I wouldn't get any work done but but that was stuff something that was coming up in my head it's like there is definite opportunity for brands to go you know how does the market think of me right now what's the truth and just be brave enough to just face the music stare at yourself in the mirror you can't progress forward without knowing where you are today So what I love about our conversation, uh, Elisa, is, you know, you've finally been able to unleash your own brilliance. Um, As you said, the the genius that made you that that person that was a little bit different, um, that wouldn't quite fit in, that would get the job and do a great job and then suddenly it was like, not anymore, who experienced, you know, your own um, challenges, as you said, racially, bullying, whatever it may be. Essentially, it's non-conforming that this wonderful talent and genius is finally uh, is finally able to shine like you've unleashed your brilliance. But I, what I love about your work is that everything you do is about unleashing the brilliance in others. It's about unleashing the brilliance in the teams, in the organizations, in the leadership, in the strategy. It's actually what you're doing is um, essentially you're 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 giving a voice to the people that are talking already and they're talking behind their computer screens uh, and amongst themselves. And what you're saying is let me hear you and I'll pass your message on. And I, I absolutely love everything that you're doing. So for any of our 
people that are listening in that want to find out a little bit more that are open to having a conversation? What is the best way that they can find you? I'm all over social media. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn or we have a YouTube channel with lots of content and also through Instagram, which is our fun playpen to, you know, have fun with data. Um, Or you can email me or go through our website and contact me directly. I'm always open. Um, My role in this world is to, as you say, um, translate the truths of the market. We are in a position now where we have the beauty of technology to mine this very fast in an unbiased way and, um, you know, represent and democratise data that's already out there. That's To me, that will make my heart sing if I can work on more and more of those projects because I see, you know, as an economist, I don't like waste. We always It's all about allocation of scarce resources. And so we all have scarce resources and time, energy and money. And so I want all businesses to survive and thrive Uh, you know, businesses employ people, they're the engines of our economies, of our families, you know, happy workplaces, you know, is is happy the world. So to me, you know, anything that I can do to help leaders make clear decisions with confidence, with data, I am your girl. I love it. I love it. I think um, I don't think there's anything more I can add to that. I was going to say. So, what are you, what are you passionate about? And I'm like, nope, she's done it there and then. It's like passionate about truth and choice and decisions and making decisions based on the facts. Um, I'm so glad that you became that flamingo in that flock of pigeons, as I like to encourage people to do. I'm so glad that you have unleashed your brilliance. And I'm really excited to continue to watch your journey, to support your journey, because the world is ready to listen right now. And I think um, those people that choose to listen will be the ones that will absolutely give themselves a competitive edge um, into the future. And people are crying out to be heard. So thank you for your work. Thank you for sharing your journey, your story, your passion. And uh, I know this conversation is going to continue. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Janine. And thank you uh, to all the listeners. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. Follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more. Visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.